Thanks for being here again tonight. We are going to turn the corner, so I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you stuck with us and stuck it out, because this is where all the, all the stuff that we've been talking about up till this point is going to start to have some payoff, and so I think that you'll find it uh, encouraging as we start to dive in tonight. So, with that said, oh, actually, before we before we dive in. I wanted to just do a quick, quick PSA. If you are wondering where to find, or if you, if you didn't even know that we have the video versions of these podcasts available. So everything so far, weeks one, two, and three, are all up live currently on our YouTube channel. So if you don't know where that is or how to access it, there's a few ways that you can get at that or share it with people. You can go directly to YouTube, and you can search for the, the Oasis AZ, and you'll find our channel where all of our video podcasts from Sunday Sermons go up. Or alternatively, you can go to our church website, theoasisaz.com, and you can go to podcasts. There's a tab at the top, podcasts, and Sunday podcasts, and you'll be able to link directly out to them uh, that way as well. So... Just FYI, because I've, I've gotten some questions. I know some other people have gotten some questions about where is that? Where do I find it? So there, there you go. That's how you find it. All right. So as is our custom, we're going through nine difficult questions. And tonight we are in session four. So we're almost there. We're getting down to the end of it, which is hard to believe. But uh, we're going to cover two, two topics tonight. The first is how valuable is free will when you really get down to it because we've been kicking this can down the road every week <laughs> free will free will free will right well tonight it's time to to stop kicking the can and we're going to we're going to talk about it we're going to discuss free will and try and wrap our heads around that at least a little bit there's so much more that you can read about this topic and so i'm going to give you i'm going to give you a few thoughts and i'll give you my take and then after our break, we are also going to turn the corner and we're going to discuss, so what good is the suffering that I endure? I think we're all in agreement that there is suffering, that evil exists, and that we all experience it. So how, what difference does it make? How, how is any good able to come out of the suffering that we experience or that we see? So that's where we stand. Show of hands, out of curiosity, who is able to do the homework Wow, okay, fair majority of you. All right, well, that's good, because that may or may not <clears throat> give you a leg up in something we're going to do in just a minute, which is awesome. So quickly, though, let's do a bit of a review and just run back the big ideas from last week. So if you weren't with us, you'll get caught up. If you were with us, this will be a little bit of a refresher because we're going to use this as our springboard. So first, we talked about hell last week and how in the world could eternal punishment be fair and I'm just going to throw it out to you. And one of the conclusions we came to is, again, based on some of the things that we looked at in Scripture, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and some other things, eternal punishment could be fair. It, it, it can be fair if, and I'll let you fill in that. What, what's, what's our if? Eternal punishment is fair. Exactly. Eternal punishment would be fair if... The, the citizens of hell are eternally unrepentant. 
so long as people continue to go on sinning, continue to go on rebelling and rejecting God, then forever would be the only fitting punishment for, for such people. And so that's sort of the, in a nutshell, all the, for the, what we talked about for the first half of the week. Our second question, we started with this question, why does God let a child die? And as I discussed last week, that's very much more of an emotionally oriented question. And there really isn't a, well, let's sit down and talk it through response. That's not the time or the place. If someone's dealing with a, a tragedy like that. So we sort of backed out, we took a more general approach and said, well, what if we reframe the question, why does God let children die just in, in general? Why does God allow something like that to happen? And there is a reason that we're going to get to tonight that accounts for the vast majority of why children die. Does anyone recall what it is? <clears throat> What's our first topic tonight? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, freedom, right? I mean, God has created a world in which people can freely choose, and some of those free choices have terrible, terrible impact on other people, including children. Also, children are themselves able to make free choices, and some of those free choices, unfortunately, result in injury and, and death. And so, again, as difficult as it may be that freedom and just our ability to have a choice to do, to do other than what God would perhaps will for us is a big, big reason why children die. And that said, though, there is this sort of other category of things that we could talk about, and that was, so what about children who die from things that aren't a direct result of any free choice that someone's made? Things like diseases and illnesses and horrible, horrible things like that. Does anyone recall sort of what we, what we did to sort of go down that, that line of thought? The idea of, if you're going to bring up, well, why, did a, why did a child die from a particular thing? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Right, yeah. So we'll just do it as a refresher. So if we're talking about a specific child dying of a specific disease, and again, you can do this with literally anything, it's not just that child, is it? Right? We don't think that any child should die of that terrible disease, whatever it may be. And of course, I think most people would agree with you. That's a pretty easy agreement. But then it's not just that disease, is it? It's, it's, I mean, we wouldn't say that all other diseases are fair game. Of course not. So it's not just that disease. Well, what about accidents? No, we don't want that either. What about murder? What about horrible things, again, that are a result of freedom? We don't want anything bad to happen to children ever. And so the question sort of as you back it out is, so until what age should children be indestructible? Right? And we're just, again, we're just following, following that as far down the line as it's going to take us. And that's where we end up. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, what we talked about last week. So standard disclaimer, as always, we are going to cover again tonight just a, a few things. Although, as I said, we're going to start to turn the corner. So this is just up here in case this is your first night. <laughs> if you go back and watch the other three weeks, I don't want you to be caught off guard by what you, what you find there. There's some difficult things. So, first topic for tonight, is free will really so valuable? How valuable is it really? Now, to get to this, I actually think that we already all know this, the answer to this question. 
So I'm going to attempt to prove that to you. And we're going to do it with a, a little friendly competition. I'm not, I don't have prizes of unspeakable value to give anyone here, but let's just see how we can do this. So we're going to keep this as simple as possible. So I'm going to divide the room very, very generally into four teams, and we're going to do it this way. If you are, and I'm going to let you self-select here if you're on the line, if you're generally speaking in the back half, that corner area of the whole room, you're going to be on a team. If you're generally in this front area, you're going to be on a team. Back area of this room here and the front area of the room. So those are your four teams. So go ahead and take a second and sort of cluster together because you are going to need to discuss some of these things as we, as we go. There's like already a tug of war over which side of the aisle everyone's going to have to go to. <laughs> All right. Great. So, and, and just in case you're wondering, I can see there's, there are some numerical imbalances. Don't worry because that has nothing to do necessarily with the outcome of this competition, all right? So it's not based on numbers. So here's how we're gonna do this. I am going to read you a clue. I'm gonna use that very generally. It's basically a statement. Based on the statement, as a group, I'm gonna give you about 15 to 20 seconds to discuss amongst yourselves and arrive at one answer, a consensus. You are going to have to name that movie, okay? Now, I wouldn't do anything to you that I'm not willing to do. I've seen all these movies, whether or not I'm proud of it, so I'll just say that. You may or may not have as much time on your hands as I do to see all these movies as well, but, so let's practice. Name that movie. I will accept either The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, thank you, because I think that both works. Yeah, I heard them both. All right, and we'll just go it this way. The most correct answers is gonna win. And they're going to win applause and, you know, <laughs> basically that. That's how it go. Does that sound good to everyone? All right. So here we go. We're going to start off with what I think, what I think is going to be a little bit of a, a slow-pitch softball. So here we go. A computer hacker learns from mysterious rebels about the true nature of his reality and his role in the war against its controllers. I'll give you about 20 seconds to decide on the movie. If you're playing along at home, feel free to do this. <laughs> About five more seconds. Now, do, we're not going to review answers yet, so just write it down or keep it to yourself, okay, as a team. We're going to review this all together at the end. All right. Clue number two. Here we go. When seeds drift to Earth from space, mysterious pods begin to grow and invade a small town, replicating the residents one body at a time. 20 seconds.
Five seconds. All right. Clue number three. In a future where a special police unit is able to arrest murderers before they commit their crimes, an officer from that unit is himself accused of a future murder. Name that movie. Give you about 20 seconds. About five seconds. All right. Moving on. Clue number four. Here's where it gets, it gets real. When their relationship turns sour, a couple undergoes a medical procedure to have each other erased from their memories. Name that movie. Ten more seconds. All right, number five coming at you. Here we go, number five. Excuse me. A genetically inferior man assumes the identity of a superior one in order to pursue his lifelong dream of space travel. Name that movie. Fifteen seconds. Five seconds. And time. All right, two more. Here we go. Number six, an insurance salesman discovers his whole life is actually a reality TV show. A little bit louder for the other teams. Just, just so. For a... <laughs> there you go. I like it. Throwing out red herrings here, left and right. Five more seconds. And let's do our last one. Here we go. The affair between a politician and a contemporary dancer is affected by mysterious forces keeping the lovers apart. Name that movie. This is where <clears throat> maybe the homework would have helped you. Wink, wink, nod, nod. <laughs> Ten more seconds. All right, teams. All right, let's see how we all did. So we're going to review this together, and I'm just going to have you throw it out to me. All right, so first one, what are we looking at? The Matrix. All right, so if you got it correct, mark it correct. Very good. Now, you all thought that they were all going to be this easy, right? And then things got intense. Number two. Nailed it. This is just too good. Donald Sutherland's too yes. hilarious in this shot, but yes. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 1978, I think. Yeah, it wasn't good. So it's, you know. All right, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Number three. 
Spot on. That is Minority Report, number three. Minority Report. Very good. Number four. This is where, this is where the curveball comes in. I want to know how many people have seen this movie. Anybody? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That is a mouthful. Absolutely a mouthful. This, this group over here. All right, number five. It's one of my wife's favorite movies, by the way, but it's so obscure. It is. It is Gattaca. Gattaca. All right. I know. I'm throwing the teens for a loop. They're like, what are these movies? Number six. This group gave it to everyone. What is it? <laughs> the Truman Show. The Truman Show. Very good. And our last one, number seven, the tiebreaker. Does anyone recall this movie? Yes. This was the homework clip, The Adjustment Bureau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So real fast, let's do this. Hands up if your team got at least three correct. At least three correct. All right, everyone's in so far. Now, if, you, if, if this is no longer true of your team, go ahead and drop your hands, all right? Four correct. Everyone's in. It's five correct. Wow. All right, here we go. Six correct. Ooh. Now, you can't, you can't plan that any better. Like, it's literally a four-way tie. <laughs> That's awesome. So give yourselves a hand. Very good. Nicely done. Just out of curiosity, what was the one you all missed? The last one. The last one? Gattaca. Gattaca? Okay. All right. All right. So go ahead and you can move back to your seats and then we'll keep rolling. So, rather than me tell you why we just did that, I would much rather you tell me what was the point and why those movies? They are all about free will. That's absolutely true. As major, major themes. Say that again. Judging societies. Yeah, for sure. So making distinctions between people maybe just based on some externals and whether or not that's fair to do or, do, you know, are people more than just the labels that we put on them, right? Can they break out of those things? That's definitely, I mean, that's the theme of Gattaca for sure. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, one of the big themes for those who've seen it, who haven't seen it is, are you the same person without your memories? As painful as some of those memories may be, if you take those memories away, are you actually the same person? Or are you someone different, right? So things like this. So here's the thing. If you've seen most of those movies, or, or all of them, what is the conclusion that they all universally come to about free will? Is it valuable? Yeah, it is, right? Despite pain, despite suffering, despite consequences that may come down the line, 
the, the main characters are always willing, always, to, gr to grab at free will despite the pain that it might bring, which seems interesting, but I, I would just say that, so the conclusion that we can come to, even as a society in general, is that free will is absolutely valuable. Everyone seems to value it. Every movie that gets made about time travel, about determinant, about, people seem to intuitively want us to be able to have some sort of self-determination, right? But there's an interesting thing about free will. Everybody wants free will, but there's also this paradox of free will. Because when you look at the characters in these movies, or even in, when we think of people in maybe stories that we've read, even historical stories that we've read, when it comes to free will, everybody wants it. Everybody agrees that it's valuable and that we should have it or that we do have it. But does that mean that we, how do we look at people who would say, I do have free will and it should be my will, my choice, always, right? How do we look at those people? Are they models, role models to us? No, I mean, this is how, this is how my four-month-old is, right? It's, it's, it's what he wants now, always. But if an adult acted that way, we would not look very highly on them, even though they're, they're exercising their free will, they're getting what they want all the time. But we don't look at them in a favorable light. What about you know, people who get their will absolutely? By the way, if you don't know who this is, this is uh, Idi Amin, yep, the butcher of Uganda, one of the most brutal dictators in African history. He, got, he gets his way all the time, right? But do we look favorably on people like this, who push other people down in order to get what they want? No. Well, he gets his will all the time, and he's able to exercise his freedom of choice with regularity. And yet we would say, yeah, but he's not a good dude just because of that. Well, let's back off of the absolutes. What about my will more? How many married folks do we have in the room? How, much of your, how many of you got your way more after you got married. <laughs> now, if you're, having, if you're having a fight, if you're having a fight right now, I totally understand. You absolutely get your way more. Totally, honey. I get my way more so much. But let's be frank, right? You got your way way more when you were single, correct? Yeah. And yet, we look at this as something that, you know, in general, the self, this idea of self-sacrifice and giving up yourself for another is something we look on favorably. But wait. I thought we said free will is valuable. We want free will, we have free will, and yet we value, at the same time, people who willingly give it up. What's the deal? Are we schizophrenic? What's going on here, right? Even Jesus exercised this, this concept. When he prayed to the Father, like, it's not my will, it's your will on earth as it is in heaven, right? Jesus is laying down his own will in the garden before he goes and gets crucified, even though he's like, God, if it's possible, Father, please don't let this happen to me. But nevertheless, I'm going to be self-sacrificial. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to you. What, not what I want, but what you want. And we look at this and say, yeah, that was spot on. That was exactly what Jesus should have done. And we aspire to be like that as well. So I would submit to you that here's, here's the paradox. It is not the having of free will that makes it so valuable. It is the choosing. It's the choosing that makes free will what it is. In other words, if I don't have the ability to do other than what I do, 
then there is no intrinsic value to my choices. Put it this way. Would we all look at a man who is, you know, he's the poster boy for, he's, he's the husband of the year. He dotes on his wife. He always does the right thing. He's the father of the century, right? His kids adore him. He does everything to, to build them up and to do all these things, right? We would look at that guy just from the outside and be like, That's an, he's an amazing dude. Well, what if we found out that there was someone following him around at gunpoint with a gun pointing at the back of his head, and, he, and they basically said, you're going to do everything I tell you to do, or I pull the trigger. Would we still look at that man the same way? Would we still have the same respect for him and be like, he's an amazing guy? Well, no, he's not as amazing because he can't do other, I mean, if he wants to stay alive, right? His choice has been taken away. It's the ability that he, it's the fact that he could be a terrible father or husband, but he chooses not to be. That is the thing that we look up to and we see as, as a part of his character that is worthy of respect and honor and, and praise. So here's the question. If we look at free will and the ability to do otherwise, and we say, well, it's the fact that I could do A, but instead I choose to do B that makes this whole thing so valuable, uh, what if God feels the same way? What if God feels the same way about choice? And I'll, I'll give you three examples just to kind of get our minds rolling on this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God had his ideal, no one would go to hell. Everyone would repent. I mean, that was the point of, of Christ, right, is to make salvation possible. And ideally for everyone, it's certainly sufficient for everyone. And yet we know from experience that this is not what happens. There are those who perish and die the second death. In Matthew chapter 23, and we looked at this last week in a different context, but Jesus is looking at the city of Jerusalem and lamenting over the fact that Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you. I would have, I would have taken you under my wing, using this, this analogy, this animal analogy, right? But you were not willing. I wanted this. I would have done it if you had been willing, but you weren't. And so, by implication, it didn't happen, right? And we know it didn't happen, because rather than embracing Jesus, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. One more, Luke chapter 7, verse 30. This is in reference to John the Baptist and his ministry. It says that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, speaking of John. God's intention for them, just like everyone else, was that they would be baptized in John's baptism of repentance, which would prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus, soften their hearts so that they could embrace Jesus as the Messiah and as Savior when he came. But they rejected that purpose. God had a plan for them, and they said, no thanks, I'm good. And I raise these just simply to suggest to you that despite what we may think, there certainly seems to be some scriptural precedent for the idea that God does not always get what God wants. Now, God is certainly going to ultimately get what he wants in, in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things. But in the details, it seems like God defers to our free will. God wants things for us. 
And we read it as Christians. God wants our sanctification. He wants us to, to grow out of the sin that we struggle with. And yet, we don't always do that, right? God wants things for us that we don't always achieve. So is it actually the choosing that makes our free will valuable? Because if we were to choose God, how much more valuable would that be to God, right? So we'll look at some questions, maybe objections you might call them, that come up when we're talking about this whole notion of free will as it intersects with the problem of evil and suffering. And we're just going to go through them together, but I want us to think through some of these because these are things that we, we have, I've heard and maybe we've even all thought, but we need to think them through and pay a little bit closer attention. So when we start asking questions like, well, but God's sovereign, right? So couldn't God, couldn't he prevent all evil? I mean, couldn't he just make it so nothing bad ever happens? Well, I want you to look at the picture because the answer is, uh, well, yeah, of course he could. What's not in the picture now? People. Of course God. God could totally get rid of all evil and all suffering. He just doesn't have to make free creatures. Problem solved. But here we are. So I think the implication would be that that's not really a solution God's interested in. And might I say, on that same token, if we were to say, okay, well, fine, but what about if he does create people? Can he still prevent all evil? Well, not without creating a fantasy world. Like, it would be like a cartoon. So picture this. What if every time someone tried to shoot someone, as soon as they pull the trigger, the bullet turns into bubbles? Or when someone goes to stab someone else with a knife, it becomes rubber. Or when someone falls off of the top of a building, maybe even intentionally, trying to, trying to take their own life, suddenly, magically, there's 25 feet deep of down pillows instead of sidewalk, or a trampoline, like in some Bugs Bunny cartoon, right? God could certainly prevent all evil, all bad things from happening, right, in terms of actual outcomes. But it's a fantasy world. It's a cartoon. Moreover, do, does anyone's choices actually matter at that point? Right? If, I mean, how much of that has to happen before we all realize, like, you know, I don't think I can really do other than what God wants me to do. Because he's going to steer me that way no matter what. I want to do this, but he just, nope, just puts up a a very softly pillowed brick wall and says, no, you're not going that way, right? Okay, so maybe God can't prevent all evil that way. Could he do it, though, without our knowing? Could he be sneaky about it? Well, you would have to take away all the examples of the stuff we just talked about, right? None of that can happen because all that's obvious, and we would immediately know, well, something's up, right? The world we live in is controlled. Our choices are, are compelled. So you'd have to be appealing to something like chance or serendipity or happenstance, right? That just coincidence after coincidence after coincidence providentially is what just prevents bad things from happening. And I, I don't remember where I read it now, but I remember reading a story about this kind of circumstance where 
the example was given of, let's say, let's say there's a woman who has decided that she wants to take her own life. And so the story goes, she finds the tallest building in her city, and she, goes, she starts to go up to the top floor. She's going to go to the roof, and she's going to throw herself off. So she gets in the elevator. Halfway up, the elevator breaks. The maintenance crew has to come. She's stuck in there for a couple hours. They have to take everyone out of the building, whatever. She doesn't get, so she comes back the next day. Now the elevator is still out of order, so she has to take the stairs. She gets all the way up to the top, and the door to the roof is locked from the outside. She can't go. So dejected that she can't take her own life, she goes down and decides, I'm going to try again tomorrow. So she goes back the next day, and she decides, I'm not going to go up the way. I'm going to go out the fire escape, except she realizes that all the windows in this building are barred. She can't go out that way. And the next day, she comes back, and she starts up the stairs, and she gets mugged in the stairwell. Make this woman as dumb as you want. After the thousandth time that she has tried to take her own life, and it has not worked, she's going to start to suspect that maybe the game is rigged. Right? So no, God can't prevent all evil and all suffering without our knowing. We're going to pick up on it. You can only experience so much coincidence before it starts to look like intentionality. So what about, I mean, could God, could God make us freely choose only what's right? Would that be possible? I'm going to pick on my friend, Brady. Would you mind coming up here for just a second? He does not know about this, by the way, so I'm just totally, totally impromptu here. The reason I'm asking Brady is because Brady is one of the best artists that I happen to know. So if anyone's going to be able to do this, it's Brady. But if you're, if you're taking notes, if you've got something in front of you, go ahead and try this too. I'm going to ask you to, to give it a shot. So Brady, with this marker, now if you want to just move so people can kind of get an idea of, uh, of what you're about to do. I'm just going to ask you to draw something that for you, I mean, you're a great artist. This should be very simple. So again, feel free to follow along if you want. Here's what I would like you to do, Brady. Please draw, and go ahead and get started and draw it big. Please draw a square okay. circle. You got it. There you go. That's a D. <laughs> it, you're a great artist, Brady. Please draw a square circle. Anyone having any luck out there? No, that's it. Thanks, man. Totally appreciate that. Brady's a great artist. Thank you, Brady. Brady is a great artist. So why can't he draw a square circle? It's nonsense. It's garbly gook. It doesn't mean anything. It's incoherent, right? Why can't... And Brady's a great artist. Does, does how good he is at art have anything to do with his ability or inability to draw a square circle? Not at all, because it's not a thing. I just said nonsense to him, and he tried his darndest to make sense of it. <laughs> Thank you. Now, God is the most powerful being that we know. Does that matter when we ask God if he can make us freely do something? Why not? It's nonsense. You can't make someone 
freely do something. It's incoherent. It's a logical contradiction. You might as well ask to be a married bachelor or ask someone to shout quietly, right? Like they, there are certain things that just can't be done. And the fact that God is the most powerful being doesn't, it, logical contradictions are contradictions for everyone, including God. So God can't make people freely do something. It doesn't work that way. We're either free or we're not. But you can't compel someone to freely do something. Okay, so could God maybe only create beings who would freely choose right? Maybe he just backs up a step further and says, well, then I'm just going to make beings that, would all, all, that I just know would freely choose right all the time. And I'm not going to compel them to do anything. I think the fact that we're here having this conversation probably tells us not feasible. If God could have done that, he would have. But here we are. And we don't always choose right. Well, how about, forget, forget all evil. Could God just prevent more evil than he does? I think this question is circular. Meaning, I think it's assuming the thing that it's trying to prove. In 2 Thessalonians, we read about, the, the, Paul says that you know what is restraining him, speaking of the man of lawlessness now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Scripture tells us that God is actively at work in the world, restraining lawlessness and evil. So to ask, well, could God just prevent more evil? There's sure a lot of it out there. You're assuming that God isn't already preventing more evil. Do we have any idea how much evil God is already preventing? Do we have any idea how bad the world would be if God wasn't actively working in it to restrain and to prevent evil, whether it be through him providentially, directly, or even through the influence of his church? We're assuming God isn't already preventing more evil, but scripture says he is. Well, could God just show us more of his power? Could he make it plain so we don't have to deal with this back and forth about, like, what do we, what do, we do? Again, Scripture tells us he has. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Could God show us more of his power? Yes, he could. But I think there's very good reasons why he doesn't, which we're going to get to in just a second. So fine. Could God just teach us some other way? Because this is hard. And we don't like it. <laughs> now I'm going to give you a, an uninspired version of the, the story of Scripture, just from the perspective of this question of evil and suffering. This is a big, broad strokes. So here we go. When God created, he put Adam and Eve in perfect conditions. And he said to them, follow me, be in fellowship with me, have a relationship with me. And, we, and they failed. Right? They failed. And God only gave them one commandment, but they, they failed. Now, cynically, we might look at that, or even the people, people today might look at that and say, 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's true, but you didn't tell us what to do, God. I mean, you put us in this garden, and you told us one thing not to do, but you didn't tell us exactly how we needed to do this so that we could be in a right relationship with you. And God says, okay, I'll tell you. I'll give you the law. I'll tell you exactly what you need to do to be in a right relationship with me. I'll spell it all out. And what happens? We fail. But God, you didn't show us. I mean, you told us, right? You told us all we had to do, but how are we supposed to know how to actually live that out? That's hard. And God says, okay, I'll show you. I'll come and I'll do it for you. I'll show you exactly what it looks like to live a life as a human in fellowship and relationship with God perfectly. I'll send my son, and he'll do it. But then we would look at that, again, cynically. We might be tempted to say, but God, Jesus was God, right? We have to deal with the world and the flesh and the devil, never mind the fact that so did Jesus, right? If you read, read his temptation in the wilderness. But we would say, there's so many external forces that just make it so hard to follow you. Even though you showed us, like, it's different for you. It's hard for us. We can't do it. And again, depending on your eschatology of how you see end times, like, there's, whether literal or not, there's a time when God is going to say, okay, I'll come back and I'll do it myself. I'll remove all those things. I'll get rid of them. And I will rule this world. But even then, the millennial kingdom, and we read about in Revelation, things aren't perfect. You say, God, things aren't perfect, though. I mean, there's still, there's still going to be some rebellion. Even though you're here, even though these things have been put away, and Satan's been bound for this time, like, and we don't have to worry about his influence anymore, it doesn't matter, it's still not perfect. Well, guess what? God's done everything, every step of the way, to mitigate all this. So God's going to be able, at the end of days, on the judgment, to look at every single person and say, I put you in perfect conditions. I told you what to do. I showed you what to do. And I removed all these influences that could, help, that could push you in another direction away. Exactly what more could I have done? Explain it to me, right? God will be perfectly justified on the last day because he's done it all. Every step of the way, he's made it possible for us to, to follow after him. But we fail. So it should tell us that the problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. And again, from our parable last week, Abraham said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. It's not about information, like we said last week. So this last thing, and I said we'll talk about this in a few minutes. It's, it's a few minutes. So let's talk about something that academics call epistemic distance as it pertains to God. All this means is simply this. God, if he's going to choose to interact with free creatures and really allow them to make real free choices, God has a tightrope to walk. He really does. And he does it beautifully, but this is the tightrope he has to walk. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is, he's receiving his call as a prophet. He is caught up to the presence of God, and he finds himself in the midst of the council, in the temple, in God's throne room, and he's in the presence of God, and he is undone. 
he's overwhelmed. God's not even trying to intimidate him. He's just there. And it overwhelms Isaiah, just being in the presence of God. So what does that mean? It means this. Could God compel us to worship him and to follow him? Of course he could. Of course he could. All he has to do is put us in his presence, and we would be overwhelmed into doing whatever he says. What if, what if God decided to do that in this world? What if God decided to put a f- giant flaming cross up in the sky? It was indisputable. Everyone could see it. No one could argue that it wasn't there. And anyone who disobeyed God was instantly struck dead. How many people wouldn't obey God? Every person that is still alive would obey God. But is God interested in that kind of obedience? Right? Everyone would be loyal to God, at least on the outside. And that's the thing, is if God compels us, overwhelms us into obedience, it doesn't seem to be the kind of obedience God's interested in. Because he certainly could do that. But he chooses not to. Because he doesn't want people to feign loyalty to him. He wants real loyalty. And for that, we have to be able to choose other than what we do. So God has to make himself known enough so that the people who want to seek after God will find him. But he has to stay sort of hidden enough so that the people who don't want anything to do with God won't be compelled into fake obedience or feigned loyalty. It's a tightrope. And if that's really what God's doing, then we should expect to find a world pretty much exactly like the world we live in. There are hints. There are signs. There's evidence all over the place if you're willing to look. But it's not overwhelming. It doesn't compel belief. So, is free will really so valuable? I would simply say this. In God's considered opinion, it sure seems so. It sure seems so. Ladies, you are uniquely qualified to answer this next question because it has to do with this. Is the rose worth the thorns? 100% nods across the room. You better believe it is. It's absolutely worth the thorns. God sees his creation as a good, good thing, including our freedom. And to God, I think, that is worth the thorns. It is worth the abuse of that freedom that can, could and can and does result. It is worth the trouble. Because it ultimately allows free beings to freely choose to enter into a relationship with him. And that love and that loyalty is real. That's what God is interested in. That's what he wants. And he's willing to take the rest in order to get it, I think. So much more we could talk about with free will. That's the overview. It is time for our break. I'm going to ask you to add nine minutes to whatever you have, and we will pick it up when you get back. All right. Looks like we're kind of winding down on the break, so thanks for grabbing a seat. And we're going to continue on. 
So here it is. This is where, as I said before, this is where we start to turn the corner. We start to come out of the valley, and we start to get some payoff. So thanks for sticking with, thanks for sticking with it through three weeks. So we're going to finish off tonight with this question. What good is the suffering that I endure? What possible good could all this come, or could, could bring, right? So, again, we're going to start off with a little group discussion. You don't need to go back to your teams. You can just do this sort of in smaller groups of two, three, four, whatever, but just relatively small. Here's what I'm going to have you discuss. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to talk about it. I want you to talk about, to share with each other from your own experience, your own lives, suffering that you experienced, not that was good, but that did good. Suffering that did good in your life. So go ahead and take a few minutes, get with your groups, couple people around you, and discuss. Take about two more minutes, two more minutes.
Okay, let's go ahead and wind down your discussions. And we're going to do this like we do. We're going to do this popcorn style, just have you throw stuff out at me. So, in terms of some of the things, whether it was what you shared or what someone else in your group shared, we'll just throw some things out. Would someone like to give us some examples of the physical benefits of some of the suffering that you talked about that did good? Physical benefits. Anyone? Sure. So seeing someone else struggling with health issues can certainly motivate you to try and mitigate or manage your own health issues. Absolutely. And it can lead to healthier choices, healthier lifestyles. Anything, any other physical benefits from suffering that you or someone else in your group has experienced? There you go. So certainly, I mean, it's something is, is traumatic. I think most of us would dread just the thought of a house burning down. But right there, so many benefits, not just for you, but for all these people who you wouldn't have met, you wouldn't have been able to interact with, who wouldn't have benefited had that not happened. Exactly. Those are great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's, it's not, again, I'm not saying that this suffering is good but that it does good. Has anyone ever had dental work? There's suffering that does good, right? It doesn't have to be huge life-changing, but just like right there, we're willing to undergo pain because of the benefits that it brings. What about emotional benefits? Any other people? Emotional benefits that have come out of the suffering that you have experienced? Coming out on the other side of that deep, dark valley, how has that benefited? Yeah, please. Closer to God? Yeah? Increases your dependence for sure. What else? Other thoughts? Yeah, please. To help others. Yeah. You have great compassion, you have empathy, but you also have an experience Yeah, your empathy and the compassion that you have for others who have gone through similar experiences. Right. I mean your ability to relate, not only that, but just like you were saying, Tony, like the the 
the inner strength that you have, the mental toughness that it can build in you because you went through it and you wouldn't have that if you didn't, right? And we already sort of alluded to this, but lastly, any spiritual benefits directly as a result of suffering that you experienced. We already said it can bring you closer to God. It certainly can. What else? Or more specifically? You are uniquely qualified to, yeah, to minister to other brothers and sisters who are going through something similar, who are in the midst of suffering. Yeah, you have a platform. Not that you would do it for that, but that is a byproduct. That's a direct result that God can use to build up the body, to have you encourage someone. And Paul talks about this, right? That we're able to turn around and encourage people because of what we've just been through, right? Here's the point. And, and how many of you have been down to the biodome in central Arizona before, or know, even know that we have a biodome? Biosphere. We have a biodome, biosphere. or biosphere, sorry. So that's the second one, I believe, right? And the first one, I remember reading a story about it where they, in the first one, they could, they could simulate every environment except one. They couldn't simulate strong wind, and their trees kept falling over. They couldn't figure out why until it dawned on them, like, because we can't simulate wind, the trees don't put down roots. They don't put down roots, they fall over. The slightest breeze, right? So right there, example, that there is something that happens as a result of the suffering that we experience. It forces us to put down strong roots so that we can endure more and more. And I'll just say, out of some of the things that we've mentioned there, that's just what you can see when you turn around and you have hindsight and you look back on your own life, your own experience. How much more do you think God is able to see in terms of if we're looking at this grand tapestry of the view that he has, the perspective, and we see this much, and even then we can turn around and we can look at experiences and we can say, I can even see some things, right? And that's not to say nothing about the potential ripple effects that our experiences, our suffering may have decades from now in other countries to other people that we will never meet who may hear about something that happened to us, right? It just goes on and on and on. And only God can wrap his mind around all of that. And I'll just say before we sort of switch gears a little bit, we tend to process suffering as if it's something that happens to us, right? Like it's passive. Bad things, suffering just we're out, we're minding our own business, we're just walking along, and then here comes suffering, you know, it just hits us like a truck. But I think we're forgetting about a lot, because the truth is that many, many, many people, including, I would say, probably most of us, willingly subject ourselves to all kinds of suffering, all kinds of torment and uncomfortable situations. We practice for hours and hours and hours to attain a certain uh, mastery over an instrument or over a skill. We starve ourselves. We go on these crazy diets in order to look a certain way or to, to be uh, able to do a certain thing. We hit the gym. We lift weights. We run. Who likes running, right? We just, unless you're running to something or from something. I never understood why you'd run when it's not one of those things, right? But we do all these things, and that's just to achieve human glory, right? just to attain something that would, again, whether it's fame or recognition or fortune or just even the knowledge that, hey, I'm able to do that thing, right? This is all from just a human perspective. There's all kinds of suffering that we willingly step into every day. 
right? So I think we can all agree, like, when we frame it that way, well, it's very obvious to see there's a lot of good that can come out of suffering because we wouldn't subject ourselves to it if we didn't think so. Now, again, I said we're going to switch gears a little bit. What about gratuitous suffering, as it's sometimes called, or suffering where there's absolutely no redeeming value to it whatsoever, right? It's not for anything. Nothing good comes out of it. And I'll give you the most extreme example I can think of because I really want to drive this point home. Let's say somewhere not too far from here, there's a forest fire. Because somewhere not too far from here, there's a forest fire, unfortunately. And let's say that in that forested area, there's a, uh, a deer. Let's make it Bambi. I'm, I'm going right for the heartstrings here, folks. <laughs> so Bambi is running from this forest fire that's encroaching on his habitat. He's running away, running away. All the animals are fleeing. Bambi's running away, and he stumbles on a, a rock, trips, falls, because he's so stressed out about this fire. Happens to trip and fall down a ravine. Breaks three of his legs in the fall. Now, he can't move, but he's not going to die from it. He just can't move. And then Bambi lays there for three days until the fire finally catches up and he dies from the smoke inhalation and burning to death, okay? There's our scenario. And people would look at that and say, there's absolutely no way there's any good that's coming out of that suffering. That's gratuitous. That's just pouring it on, rubbing salt in the wound. Pick your analogy, right? God can't possibly have a reason for that. Well, let's try something. I'll have you all close your eyes for me. I'm not going to give an altar call, but it just will do. All the all eyes are closed. If I were to make this statement, it seems to me that there is not a Bengal tiger in this room with us. Raise your hand if you would trust me on that. Without being able to see for yourselves, if would you trust? Okay, open your eyes and look around. Keep your keep your hands. Up. Okay, I've got some skeptics in the room, but the vast vast majority of you are with me on this, right? Seems to me there's not a Bengal tiger in this room with us. Most of you are willing to go with me on that. Close your eyes again. If I were to make this statement to you, it seems to me that carbon monoxide is not leaking into this room right now. How many of you, raise your hands, would trust me on that? Go ahead and open your eyes and look around. Some of you are real trusting. Honestly, way more of you than I thought there'd be. Here's the, right, well, but me, it seems to me that there isn't carbon monoxide leaking into this room. I'm not talking about whether there's a sensor or any other external thing, just from my perspective. How would I know? There's a question, right? Why, I mean, for those of you who said you'd trust me, why? <laughs> I can't see it, I can't taste it, I can't smell it. I'd have no idea anything's wrong until I'm unconscious and then I can't tell you anything, right? <laughs> Why would you trust me on that? Here's the thing. There's a key question we need to ask when we start to think about this whole concept of gratuitous suffering. And here it is. If you're a note taker, write this down. Because this is the key thing. You're going to frame this whole discussion. If it, whatever it is, if it were true, how likely am I to know it? If it were true, how likely would I be to know it? 
That's a key question. Let's run it back and let's think it through. If there were a Bengal tiger in this room, how likely would I be to know it? Pretty dang likely. It's a Bengal tiger, right? This is not a big room. But if there were carbon monoxide leaking into this room, how likely would I be to know it? Not at all likely. Not at all likely. So see, our ability to make statements about things like this are entirely dependent on how likely we are to have any clue about whether, something is gonna, whether that thing is actually true or not. So, if I were to say to you, it seems to me that God couldn't possibly have any good reasons for the suffering or the things that we look at and we say is gratuitous. Now, if that were true, how likely would I be to know it? Not at all likely. I'm not omniscient. I have no idea if God has good reasons for this. But do you see how we're framing the question? We're saying, well, it seems to me that God doesn't have good reasons. Therefore, God doesn't have good reasons. That's a fallacy. That's, not only does it make me the belly button of the universe, like as if I know any better, right? But it's just not true. I have no idea whether God has good reasons or not. And just because they're not clear to me does not at all mean that they don't exist. It's a little presumptuous. So it doesn't rule out the possibility that there is such a thing as gratuitous suffering, but what it rules out is our ability to sort of stand in judgment over God and say, no possible way. How would you know? You wouldn't. I think we need to be more humble when it comes to that question. So when we look at suffering and the good that it does, let's just look for a minute at this life. In this life, and I am my father's son, so I couldn't get away with doing a series without some small amount of alliteration. I apologize. But here we go. Here's where it comes in. In this life, suffering purges. It purges. We're going to look at some scriptures that talk about each of these things. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing trials, you may discern what the will of God is, that is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The suffering, the testing that we experience, at least from God's perspective, is intended in part to separate us from the world. Suffering should, and looking at the evil in the world, should unsettle our worldliness. That's one of the intentions behind it. It should make us painfully aware that this is not a place we want to be. We shouldn't be content here. We don't belong here. This is not our home. More on that in a minute. Also, suffering purifies. 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You will be grieved by various trials, but it's not without purpose. The so that is that your faith will be purified, it will be grounded, that you will put down those roots that we talked about a few minutes ago. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So it's not just that suffering is intended by God to turn us away from our worldliness, but it's also intended to turn us to something. And that something is good works, is righteousness. Not only unsettle our worldliness, but to make us hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we would want to pursue the things of God rather than the things of the world. Suffering produces. Romans chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There is purpose to our suffering, and it is in part, again, to make us and mold us into the kind of people that God intends for us to be. And it, should seem, it seems that God doesn't do that without suffering, without pain. I mean, the writer of Hebrews even says that he disciplines those whom he loves. Not punishment, but discipline. God is willing to, you think of the dental work analogy, God is willing to allow us to undergo temporary discomfort for a purpose. The intended purpose being that it would grow us, make us, that we would shed that thing, we would become more of what he sees us capable of becoming. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering points. To what? Well, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3, 13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And one more, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. As I said earlier, part of the role of suffering is to Help us to come to the realization that this place is not our home. Does this place bother you? Are you tired of being here? That is one of God's intentions behind the suffering that we experience, behind the evil and the suffering that he allows. It is to point his people away from this place to the place where he wants us to be oriented. You do not belong here. Do not expect to be settled here. If you feel settled here, something's wrong. Because Scripture would say that's not where our orientation should be. And lastly, suffering prepares. Romans 6.22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. God is using this life we're going to talk more about this next week. God is using this life to prepare us for the next. It is not wasted. God does not waste pain. The intention is that this life is the preparation for the next. This is not a warm-up. This is not a, a gimme, 
right? This is an integral part of the big plan that God has for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God himself is preparing us, and it is through our suffering for a little while, as, as Peter says. One more, Paul in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Just a quick note on this verse. Paul says that what we experience, all the evil and the suffering and the things that are in this world are light momentary affliction. And at first, that sounds, well, at best naive and very disconnected. But I want you to notice his language. He says it's light and momentary, the pain, the suffering, the evil that we endure, that we experience. He never says it is insignificant. In fact, and again, this is part of next week, the pain and the suffering and the evil that we experience and endure in this life is anything but insignificant. It is a major, major part of what God is trying to do in our lives and where he is intending for us to all grow toward and be as his people. It is light and momentary when you compare it to eternity, which is what Paul's doing in this verse. He's not saying that your pain is insignificant. It certainly is significant. Now, all of that is just in this life. All of that is what suffering and and the pain that we experience accomplishes in this life. Can you imagine what God has in store for that as a purpose in the life to come? This is such a short time compared to that. God has purposes for your pain and your suffering in the life to come as well. And next week, that's what we're going to look at. So here's the plan. Next week, we're going to answer two questions. How will heaven mitigate our suffering on earth? Because I very much believe, and I think the the New Testament writers believe as well, that it, it will. Certainly will. And also sort of our all-encompassing question, why does God allow evil? And after our break, because I don't think that that's going to take us too terribly long, uh, we are going to, I think, hopefully have time for some live Q&A. So as I said in the beginning of the first session, if you have questions that have come up along the way that have not been answered, or if you have a question about something that was covered that you'd like to ask about more, We'll have, I think, some time for that next week, and so that's, that's the plan. That's what we have on tap. And then we're done, which is crazy to think about. But also, there is no homework tonight. <laughs> I know, it's a big party, right? There is no homework tonight. But I will say this. At this point, and we haven't covered our last question, because why God allows evil is going to be basically, it's, this is our our capstone question. That's going to be where you're going to sort of bring it all together for yourselves. But I would say, in lieu, of, in lieu of anything that I would give you, maybe spend some time this week thinking already about how would you answer that question? Knowing what you know now, how would you answer that question? Why does God allow evil? I think you have a lot of the building blocks already. We're going to put one more in your toolbox next week, and then we're going to, we're going to finish it all off. But That's it. That's what we have for you. Let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll get out of here.
Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, for, for you, for just being who you are, God. Thank you that you have loved us so much that even when we abused the, the good gift that you gave us, our freedom, God, that you didn't leave us where we were, that you also freely chose to make a way and that you, God, have made that way through your son, Jesus, so that because of, because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, that, God, we can have new life in, in him. And we can be part of your forever family, that we can live forever with you, and that, God, that you are even now using the experiences in this life to prepare us, to prune us, to get us to a place where we are fit for that life. As difficult as it is, God, it is encouraging and helpful to know that there is purpose, that, God, you don't waste pain. I thank you that you are in control. Nothing happens to us in this life or anyone else that is not that is beyond the scope of what you know about, what you have allowed in your providence, and that, God, you have intentions for every bit of it. So, God, I pray that you would give us your perspective on the pain and the suffering and the evil in the world, that you would allow us to see that while you certainly don't like it, it was never part of your plan, God, you are more than powerful enough and capable enough to use it. Like with Joseph, what others have meant for evil, God, you are able to turn and use for good. And we pray that you would just help us to see that. Help us to share that with others. Help us to show others that perspective maybe this week as we think on these things. God, take us from here. Uh, please uh, bless this week. Allow us to be used of you to, to share with others, to encourage them, to challenge them, and God, to grow in our own faith this week. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all. See you next week.